Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> So welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, Richard Shepard. And today we are going to be taking another bite at the cherry of Christine. You may remember a few months ago, we talked to Dan Jones about the novel. And I'm delighted to say that uh, our guest today is Lee Gambin, a film historian and author who has written a book about the making of the 1983 John Carpenter movie, Christine, called Hell Hath No Fury Like Her. Hello, Lee. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, the pleasure is all ours, I assure you. So I'm, I'm going to start off just by asking, out of all the, the myriad adaptations of Stephen King novels, what is it about Christine that kind of draws you in enough to write a whole book about it? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. So I feel like um, it probably came from my, I guess, essential love for the film and the novel and just that it's a great character study. But just to backtrack, I did a book all about Cujo, um, mm. so, so the, the book I did on Cujo was, um, massively a passion project. I've always loved Cujo. I'm a big fan of animal horror films. I'm a big fan of animal centric films in general. Um, and I felt like Cujo was completely under represent, represented when people talked about horror cinema. Um, it was always, you know, really hard to find, you know, academic writing on it or analytical writing. So I was like, nah, I'm going to do this book on Cujo. So I went full whole hog. And did this huge, you know, an analytical book with interviews with everyone I could get my hands on. Um, so that was that was kind of the the seed for Christine, paving the way for Christine. So Christine um, is another film. I grew up, you know, a big movie junkie as a kid, as we all did, I guess, and and yeah. big reader of horror novels. And Christine was one that was also an, a little bit sort of I felt um, neglected. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. everyone sort of goes on about The Shining and Carrie and other ones. But I feel like Christine, and I love them, but I feel like Christine kind of is neglected. And it's kind of funny because it's a parallel um, thing there where Stephen King, you know, used the Plymouth Fury as the monster of the piece, as this kind of witch, Mm. this sort of vengeful machine, because the Plymouth Fury in the annals of American cars, um, classic American cars, is kind of the underdog car. And I think like that's something that's really cool because it resonates with me. But I felt like the film was just a beautiful adaptation from John Carpenter um, and I thought that the film really deserved good sort of uh, lengthy in-depth analysis because, as I said earlier, it's such a good character study, a good character piece, a great piece on relationships, um, the concept of possession. So not Mm. just, you know, demonic possession or, um, you know, spiritual possession but actual ownership. Um, what it says about America's love affair with the car, young men sort of gravit- you know, sort of navigating their worlds, um, how it sort of talks about the worship of women and the worship of um, femininity and the female body, etc. Uh, there's so much packed into that. Buddyhood, um, you know, there's so much in there, both the novel and the film adaptation, because I feel like the film adaptation has its own language as well um, and its mm-hmm. own sort of concepts and themes outside of the novel. So I just felt like the, the the film 
deserved a monograph. And, you know, everyone involved with that film was just a delight to talk to. Um, and, yeah, just I thought, yeah, it was one of those things that kind of deserved um, a, a big case study dedicated to it. And I guess, yeah, doing the Cujo book, I was like, yeah, I think um, Christine's the one to go to next. And it was at the same time kind of uh, – Christine was actually quite a, a big – quick turnaround book for me uh, because mm. at the same time I was doing Christine, I was working on a book on The Howling. So I did a monograph yeah. on The Howling, another childhood favourite that deserved, you know, another monograph. And what I like to do with my writing and my work is do a beautifully kind of realised um, marriage between critical analysis and production history because I feel like a lot of critics and film historians, well, not so much historians, critics and, and academics, etc., are just... Uh, in for the um, uh, the academic and analytical side, so like you know, you know, idiosyncratic kind of thought, I guess, and just critical sort of aspects without even talking to people who were involved with the film. But I feel like, especially if movies are from the seventies onwards, most of these people who worked on these films are generally going to be alive. So why mm-hmm. not reach out and talk to them? So I like to have that marriage between uh, production history as well as critical analysis, um, and I think that's a really important thing to have both of that in there because it's really great to talk to, you know, whether they're the writer or the, uh, the director or the stars or whoever worked on the film and just to hear their perspectives. And I feel like something like the Christine book gave varied perspectives. Um, you know, one thing that was quite surprising was the fact that, you know, John Carpenter, bless him, thought he was, you know, just doing another job. And it was kind of like a, a not he was kind of gun for hire, but you watch that movie and it's a, it's the product of an auteur. Like every every shot is stunning. Like it's such a beautifully composed film. Like it's a visually beautiful film and it moves beautifully and it's moody. Absolutely. But he he's so amazingly humble and down to earth. It's like well he he was he's more keen on talking about um, other people's films than his own, which is interesting because I initially got in touch with him and I did a book on I did a big overview book of every film um, movie movie musical sorry. Every movie musical from 1970 to 1980. So within that, of course, I talked about biopics, so musical bios, and one of them was, of course, the TV movie of Alvis. And so yes. talking, to, yeah, talking to him about Alvis, which he was really happy to talk about because I guess he seldom gets to talk about it, um, that was awesome. And it was like, you know, riffing on Vincent Minnelli films and just amazing stuff and just talking about, um, you know, his relationship with Kurt Russell and um, Shelley Winters in the film, his story about her, like just amazing. So, you know, a couple of years later down the track, I get to do uh, Christine and talk to him again. He's just been really supportive and just a wonderful guy. But, um, yeah, I just felt Christine, sorry, it's a long-winded answer. (laughs) (laughs) But Christine definitely deserved a monograph. I feel like it's a great book and a fantastic film. So I think it deserved it. And it was at the same time my brain was kind of doing these kind of monographs that were both analytical and production history and doing shitloads of research and lots and Mm -hmm. lots of interviews and just being blessed with people just being awesome and, you know, uh, sourcing amazing images and... And just being really, really generous with their time and their answers. I mean, William, um, the screenwriter, uh, is just amazing, William Phillips. And his insight into just the adaptation was just divine. Like, he could have had a whole book just solely on him. But um, so, like, all this sort of stuff was just, you know, fell into place. Chris, it's funny because the film, from all accounts, from everyone, from all the, the people who worked on the film, whether it was, you know, 
uh, Keith Gordon or John Carpenter or Alexandra Paul, whoever it was, said the film was just a smooth ride and mm. that book was also a smooth ride. That's fascinating. I, what I think is really interesting about the, the film is that in all the promotional material, it's referred to as John Carpenter's Christine rather than Stephen King's. And I think you're right that it does have that auteur thing where you really do get a feel for John Carpenter as a filmmaker. And he actually shot some of it on the same locations that he shot Halloween in. Is that correct? Um, yeah, there's Pasadena in there, yes. And the, the first couple of shots where you see Arnie's house has definitely got that that kind of John Carpenter feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, well, Los Angeles, yeah, absolutely. Um and it's that beautiful suburban landscape. And interestingly enough, it's it's set at the same year of Halloween. <laughs> it's made it's made later, but it's set in that same period. So that was another really fascinating thing to ask him about that, to ask John Carpenter about how he replicated only a few years ago. So there's like there's really sort of obvious um, images in the movie that was you know that sort of tell you it's 1978. And one of them is um, at the football field when they're playing the football game. There's mm-hmm. a couple of girls who walk past the frame and they're in like Farrah Fawcett hairs, hairstyles. <laughs> uh, they look like they're in the runaways, just walking across. But that was established <laughs> that period. But it's this is like he was saying that, that things had rapidly quite changed into from 1983, sorry, from 1978 to 1983. So it's really interesting to sort of, you know, make a movie set only a few years ago. You know, it's not a period mm-hmm. piece really and it's not at, you know, pinpoint um, contemporary so yeah that's really another aspect that's fascinating but I love what he does I love what you said he, like he does capture suburbia so beautifully I think with Halloween like making suburbia that kind of halcyon all-american uh, midwest even though we're you know it's California but they're pretending sure. it's the midwest <laughs> that pond that pond like um, quiet sort of um, restrained um, you know a, a sort of normalcy is terrifying and i think yeah, when i don't you think know, anybody with... films streets and buildings better than john carpenter yeah it's just like magnificent... you, you get that menace that kind of the, the idea that something terrible is happening but you can't detect anything oh god yeah. and seriously something like christine has informed me now like i'll walk my dog through the streets here in the suburbs of melbourne and when it's like spring and at the moment we're at the end of spring um and we're at a certain time like so the sun uh sun's going down and it's getting dark I always my my brain is like it's it's Halloween <laughs> because <laughs> the, the mood um, just the mood he evokes in that film with um, painting a picture of suburbia being beautiful but also creepy at the same time is amazing. There's something so elegant about that, and it's definitely in there with Christine. Like Christine has that aspect to it as well, um, you know, and and just the idea of the shape and Christine herself being these kind of stalking presence, you know, um, always watching um, is really fascinating as well. And they both have black eyes. Like you don't see Michael Myers' eyes. And when Christine is on a rampage, you don't actually see in. There's this mm. idea of like not seeing anything in there. It's like that emptiness, you know. I love that mm. idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you, you are, uh, you, like I say, you've studied the, the novel and the film quite extensively. And I think the main difference for me is, is the novel itself is a, it's, it's much longer than I remember when I read it as a kid. I read it again recently and it really is an epic and there is a lot they cut out for the film, isn't there? Yeah, the novel's really gruesome. There's a lot of, I mean, obviously the setting's different. It's, you know, Stephen King's love for Romero, um, setting it in Pittsburgh, dedicating Pittsburgh, it to him. Yeah. 
Yeah, the beautiful opening of each chapter with the lyrics from a song, mm. a rock and roll song about a car. I thought yeah. that, that's just magnificent. But then Christine replicates that in a sense, and I actually like it. I think Christine's a musical. It's like a Greek chorus musical because <laughs> the, the songs reflect what's going on and the oh, songs yeah, speak for her. So the songs actually are her voice, and I think that's such an inspired thing. Like, it's so brilliant. And what's, what's the first song that you hear in the factory when the, the guy's well, in there? Well, Bad to the Bone. Bad to the Bone. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Bad to <laughs> the Bone uh, doesn't fit the era per se. It was a big hit on MTV, but it summarises what we're getting involved with. We're dealing with this, 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 this you know, this car, um, this this witch basically, this vengeful witch who is just bad to the bone. She's born born evil. And, you know, it sort of summarises that. But I'm talking about all this, those wonderful moments where every song is from her era and yeah. they voice her and they speak on character. So when I say Greek chorus musical, that's because there's a different variant. Like there are different variants of horror films, there's different kinds of musicals. And one is Greek chorus where basically characters don't actively sing per se, but um, a narrative sung voice does. So if you even think of something like Disney's Bambi, with the changing seasons, you have a chorus singing, singing those uh, moments to sort of uh, initiate the change in season. So it's a very clever device. Then you've got like active Greek chorus musicals as well where, the char- where characters who are sort of stepped outside of the main plot come in and sing and move the story forward. But Christine does that. The other aspect of the novel that I think was really fascinating with Christine as opposed to the film was the gore factor. The, the novel's really gruesome, as you remember, like when she kills people, it's like elongated and, and really kind of, um, you know, gross out sort of material. I think Stephen King's thing is like you've got to scare people either with subtlety or with grossing them out. <laughs> and, and, the, and the killing sequences in Christina are really brutal, whereas in the film it's subtle. You don't see much gore at all. Um, you don't need to see anybody die, do you? Except for I think Buddy Repperton is like the only one you kind of see on screen actually get it. Yeah, oh, well, Moochie gets squashed and... Um, uh, but you don't actually see like the blood pouring out of his mouth or anything like that. No, nah, just sort of squirm. He kind of has a similar <laughs> death to Benny Buckley and Carrie in a sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, no. So yeah, Christine, the film is really bloodless. Um, and that, that's really interesting. And that's, um, you know, Carpenter um, sort of doing a mood piece as well, um, akin to something like The Fog, which I think is another masterpiece of his. But, um, yeah, it's interesting because The Thing had come out, which has got all those gorgeous effects from Rob Routine, and that was very gruesome. But then Christine comes out. And you, so you know the story that he was meant to do Firestarter. He was slanted to do Firestarter. He really wanted to do Firestarter because he really wanted to do a road movie and a movie about a father and kid and a child. Um, but Universal were kind of a bit worried about that because the thing sort of, you know, upset people and didn't do didn't well. well. Which is really, really <laughs> stupid. But, oh, well, we all know better now. Uh, but so he... he um, was optioned Christine for Columbia. So that's interesting as well. So he, you know, he wanted to make something a little bit more mood orientated and um, more of a character piece. And also just the the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing with Keith Gordon's character, which is a fantastic performance and the idea of a character sort of, you know, transforming. And it's kind of very akin to Carrie, you know, these put upon, um, uh, you know, ostracized, bullied teenagers. 
Um, oh yeah, goes, absolutely. There were a lot of parallels with Carry On. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. William, uh, is it William Oslander who plays Buddy Rafferty? That's right. Yeah, he looks like he, Travolta. He <laughs> yeah, channeling John Travolta in Carrie, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, like a copy of absolutely. Him. And great. one thing I like as well is they've both got sympathetic jocks. So I think that's really interesting. What Stephen King does, he inverts archetypes. So you got you know the archetype of the American jock in seven, especially in seventies and eighties cinema, is someone who yes is good looking and athletic and popular, but can be a jerk. Whereas in Carrie and in Christine, they're both sympathetic. There's this loving nature to them. They're nurturing. William Cat and Carrie nurtures Sissy Spacek and. John Stockwell nurses um, uh, Keith Gordon. So there's that kind of aspect too. But, um, yeah, I, I think there's so much going on in that. But, the, yeah, the differentiation from the novel to the fil- uh, film as well is also the previous owner of Christine, the, yeah, the ghost. Yeah, LeBay is a massive character in the book because he doesn't really go away. He dies, but then he kind of comes back as a, kind of a zombie or a ghost almost. But yeah. in, in the in the film, it's very much implied that Christine herself is kind of the, excuse upon the driving force behind everything. Mm-hmm. And so, that, yeah, do, do you kind of miss that aspect from the film or do you think it's quite well done? No, it doesn't need it at all. I think it, it, they're totally right to get rid of it. I believe um, Bill Phillips... You know, wanted to make the fo- keep the focus on the car and sort of John Carpenter, um, and it would have just been a different film entirely. And I also love that, um, you know, it's this wonderful female monster, you know, without any kind of male association. It's just this vengeful, um, wish fulfillment genie in a bottle kind of deal, and with repercussions. Uh, I love her as a fem- as a monster because I love the long legacy of female monsters. And this one is all about, you know, her. she seduces this boy, she warps him, she becomes obsessed with him, he becomes obsessed with her, she kills for him, but then she's going to get it. She's going to be like, okay, I'm done, let me move on, you know. And I think and she's that, jealous that, of me, isn't she? They have that kind of female rivalry they kind of go throughout the film. Yes, that's right. That's terrific. Yeah, like, you know, with the Lee Cabot character getting... You know the, the suffocating in the car, etc., and you know narrowly escaping it. But the that premise is really interesting as well. It's the whole idea of a woman scorned. Um, you know, uh, Hal hath no fury like her, and also this this is all this kind of like witch mythology as well, and um, femme fatale mythology. So it's very noir esque in that sense as well, and just that kind of connection between. Um, uh, Aspect, you know, this idea or this sort of um, concept of femininity and womanhood uh, linked to cars and ships and vehicles. Um, you know, men name their cars after women and men name their boats after women. And it's kind of like this objectification thing, uh, but then it's flipped around. So it becomes this kind of like female empowerment thing. She's in control, um, yeah, which I like. And I, and I love that the yeah. film, the film really plays up on, um, the male gaze, but it inverts it and makes the males the victim. So, you know, the first introduction of Christine, she's on the on the factory line and you get to see her in all her beauty. It's like a catwalk almost, like, you know, she's on display. <laughs> and then and she's being fiddled around by these guys and then she g- destroys. You know? <laughs> so it's really interesting. And then also the parallel between the way she's introduced and the way Lee Cabot's introduced, you know, she's walking down the hallway and the guys are all ogling her. So it's, just, it's, a good, it's a really interesting commentary on the way 
uh, boys relate to girls and also the way boys relate to each other because in the book I also talk about the sort of the um, it's quite a homoerotic sort of relationship between Dennis and, and Arnie and there's a really That's touching scene actually where they're in the car and Arnie says, you know, um, something about being ugly and John Stockwell's character says, you're not ugly, etc. And as he drives off, the song that comes on the radio is, um, uh, as I, the lyric is, you know, as I walk along, I wonder what went wrong with our love. And it's kind of like Christine drives this sort of force between these two boys. Um, and Keith Gordon had really amazing stuff to say about it. He was like, um, you know, yeah, a lot of times boys sort of bond easier together than they would with a girl. Girls are kind of foreign to them. And there's this kind of weird connection, not weird, it's like a very sort of, uh, I guess, loving relationship that these boys have who are very unlikely. Like you would not expect them to be friends in the, in the, exactly. in the grand scheme of things. But, yeah, really fascinating stuff. And I, and I know I shouldn't probably say it, and I will. Um, so, Keith, yeah. Go- Keith Gordon will um, uh, be doing some stuff. in. Re- I won't actually tell you what the product is, but he'll be talking about this kind of stuff in an upcoming documentary, which will be awesome. Mm. But, um, yeah, so there's all, all this stuff packed into Christine and so much of it's about relationships and about um, gender and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's a really interesting factor as well. And the novel hits home with all that stuff, but the film... The film, I think, condenses it and makes it, uh, I guess, more. I don't know. It's sort of uh, there's there's. It's just because it's the nature of screenwriting and the nature of film. It packs it in mm. in a more tight sort of you know ready to digest manner. Whereas in the <laughs> not with the novel, there's a lot going on. That novel, that novel is sprawling. Um, it's brilliant, <laughs> like it's wonderful. But I feel like. Um, it probably, I don't know if I could read it again in a hurry because I don't think it needs to be that long or sprawling because Salem's Lot, which is my favourite of his novels, Mine absolutely, too. keep it going. That could have gone for, you know, <laughs> 50 more friggin' books, instalments. But that's all about a small town, so we deal with all these different people, whereas Christine, I feel like, is a bit of a chamber piece. It's kind of about, you know, four or five principles. Um, but, yeah. Good stuff. And there are so many subplots and things like that. You you go very deep into the world of um, Darnell and his kind of smuggling and his criminal enterprises. And I kind of I I enjoyed reading that, but I I think they did the right thing by not really making that part of the film because it would have taken a long time to explain. And like Mm -hmm. I said, diverts your attention from what it's actually about. Mm -hmm. And for me, what the novel was about was um, friendship between these two kids and how that kind of dies and i think to me that is kind of the tragedy of christine mm-hmm. and it was nice that in the film you have these two actors who are have such chemistry together and keith yeah. gordon is inc- he's incredible in this film he's got he's got some really wonderful lines the bit where he talks about uh how being a parent is kind of your own death it, it's to do with your own mortality mm. and then later on he talks about how like friendship kind of dies and it's it, it's a wonderful performance i mean did he do much preparation for this i mean was was this was this like a oh, hard yeah, role like, for him? yeah absolutely like he's he's like full-on you know dives in deep dives and you're right all the stuff's so inspired and he's such a tragic character the arnie character um at the so, end yeah that's oh, a lonely so character sad. and the way he sort of gets tormented but yeah keith gordon's a remarkable 
actor. Um, you know, he worked with amazing people as well. He was, you know, um, worked on all that jazz for Bob Fosse, yep. worked for Brian De Palma and Dress to Kill, Just and, to and then yeah. a great director as well, like turned into a wonderful director, same as John Stockwell. But um, I think the the beauty in his performance is the tragedy and also how I think with, see, I did a, I did a lecture about male possession um, and like as in young boys getting possessed or men getting possessed, which is actually rarer than women and girls um, because I feel like um, it, there's a vulnerability to becoming possessed and becoming this monstrous person um, from being so vulnerable and unsuspecting. And mm-hmm. little girls and women and teenage girls such are much more vulnerable in the gra- in in kind of a filmic landscape. And also when they turn, it's more terrifying. So True. with when boys do, there's already an effeminization of them. They kind of there's already something kind of um, effeminate. Um, and then also with on top of that, they become something sickly and there's something perverse. So if you think of things like Amityville Two, The Possession, Sonny Montali's character you know, uh, disenfranchised, alienated, abused. Um, the, the ugliness comes out in incest and, you know, obviously then slaying his family, etc. But there's a softness. Um, Elm Street 2 with Jesse, there's a softness. Um, you know, so all this stuff's really interesting where um, Keith Gordon's character, um, Arnie Cunningham, is the same kind of deal. It's that kind of guy, the, the boy that's not really together you know there's something mm-hmm. there's something really tragic and tormented about this person and that, that leaves them susceptible to being someone who would would be easily wooed and stray from the path and become morally and spiritually corrupted um, and you get that a lot with also in the early 80s at the time of Christine a lot of the teen angst films um, uh, there's a wave of these movies a wave of young angry boys who are um, disenfranchised and also struggling with kind of, you know, getting it together and questioning masculinity, right? The role of it. You've got, you know, dramas like Ordinary People, musicals like Fame, horror films like, um, you know, uh, um, uh, friggin' The Hitcher. All these things, all these things are coming out at this time. And it's amazing. The Fan, you know, with Michael Bean. All these films about these sort of boys sort of, um, you know, uh, trying to find their place. Gang movies become popular again. The Warriors, mm. etc. So it's really, yeah. it's a really interesting zeitgeist in the culture. And across border borders, the um, genres, every genre is doing this. Um, and I think Christine's a perfect example of that. So Male Possession is really interesting. There's a great film from the 70s called The Possession of Joel Delaney with Perry King. Shirley MacLaine yes. is the lead in that. And he his possession is um, not satanic related, neither is Keith Gordon. So that's really interesting as well that it's all about um, uh, the non-satanic, non-Judaic or Christian possession. And in that, that film really discusses um, class and race. Mm-hmm. And his possession, uh, the, the ugliness that comes from that, the, what really makes him disgusting and that and vile is the, the, the sort of um, sort of sexually bent abuse on his niece and nephew and then also the incestuous stuff with his sister played by Shirley MacLaine. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of the, 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 the sexuality, the, the sick, sickness in sexuality or the incest or whatever that sort of demented sexuality comes out and it perverts it. And that's what happens in Christine, this obsession that's almost sickly sexual towards the car is what's kind of yeah. this extension of his transition and also just 
the way Carpenter translates all that from King's novel, because Stephen, Stephen King's a master. We all know that. He's amazing. He knows character. He understands character really well. I love what he does with um, small towns. And I do love, um, you mentioned earlier, all the sort of offshoot subplots. I really love them in the novel sure. formation. But something like Christine loses the power when you're kind of distracted by all this other stuff because the 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 trio the the, well, the foursome the you know Arnie Lee Dennis and Christine thing is so engaging that it kind of, all the other fat becomes a little bit um, you know distracting but yeah. what he, what he does beautifully in the novel and what John Carpenter does so beautifully with the film is discuss um, the the sort of the, the the relationship between Arnie and these in the car as a sexual awakening and in the book you get that you get that sense of it but in the film to have it just visually displayed without any dialogue you know the way Arnie touches the steering wheel or the way the car resurrects herself in front of him as if it's like a striptease with Harlem Nocturne playing that stuff is just brilliant that's so inspired and it could become it could be laughable but it's really not because it's handled by masters, you know, and I think that's all in um, Keith's performance and just the way it's shot and designed and Carpenter's direction. It's just oh, yeah. it's just really well done because the idea of, you know, objectophilia or, is, or whatever it's fucking called <laughs> when someone <laughs> is sexually attracted to a non-living thing. Um, yeah, objectophilia, that's what it is. Um, there you go. It could it could read really awkward on screen, but this is ju- this just works. And I remember Roger Ebert's review of Christine. Um, it was like you know, every, for a lot of boys, their first love wasn't a girl; it was a car. Um, you know, and I think that sort of really is um, looked at in this film. And what Stephen King does as well is he perverts things that are supposed to be healthy and wonderful, like you know, the prom in Carrie becomes True. a hell on earth. And, um, you know, your, your, your best mate, the dog, turns on you and Cujo and, you know, the fathers are not to be trusted in The Shining. So all this stuff is really beautifully played out. And in Christine, he's perverting the, the love affair between people and automobile and making it sickly and, and grim and, and perverse. And that's something that I think comes across in the film just, you know, magnificently. Yeah, no, it's interesting that I think we're... Christine is kind of like the last of the first wave of Stephen King adaptations. And the thing about the first wave is you have big name directors like Kubrick and De Palma and Carpenter making Stephen King adaptations. And like you say, because they're masters, they can take these ideas that might be somewhat absurd to other people and actually make them believable. But kind of during the rest of the 80s, you have this kind of glut of straight to video, slightly incompetently made Stephen King adaptations. And they, they they kind of miss the point. They, they, they kind of do it quite ham-fistedly, I think. So I think I think that's why Christine, to me, is, is, is very interesting because it, it marks the last of perhaps those first wave of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, I mean, 83, what a year. So you've got yeah. Christine, Cujo and The Dead Zone, all perfect films, I think, and all perfect Yeah, Cronenberg as well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, really good stuff. But yeah, um, I think when you say making things um, believable, King makes things believable with his work. I think mm. because he knows character, his characters are so good and they're so well created and conceived and, um, you know, um, the interrelations the and the interpersonal relationships and small town disease mm. sort of stuff and 
whatever he sort of tackles is always really believable because he grounds it in such a reality. Um, and you kind of feel for these characters. And so the adaptations really need to sort of serve that. They really need to serve the character. That's why I think Carrie is just a, a beautiful piece Absolutely. because what Lawrence D. Cohen does with the script is he makes it, he basically essentially Carrie is Cinderella um, mm-hmm. and what he does with the, with the adaptation is just strip it down to the core, you know, dynamics of that story, which is all about a young girl basically finding her power and finding her, finding her, her, her voice, I guess. Um, and it's this amazing kind of really tight uh, construct of this sort of ultimately a Greek tragedy. And I think that that's something that all um, comes down to King creating these characters who do who are archetypal, you know, um, mm-hmm. because they're coming from fairy tales. It's a fairy, you know, it's Cinderella. So you've got the wicked stepmother, the wicked stepsisters with the bullies. You've got the the, the fairy godmother being the telekinesis, you know, your Prince Charming, etc. It's all in there. Mm-hmm. But to make it real is to really believe in these characters and give them this depth that, that transcends their archetypal lineage or the archetypal um, backdrop or background. And I think that's what the power of that is um, as far as like um, adapting King's work. So when you talk about the sort of the lesser films, I feel Mm. like, yeah, you're right. It is to do with um, the filmmakers essentially. But I'm, look, I'm a big champion of some of them that people sort of poo poo. Like, uh, you know, people kind of. Which is your favorite underdog? Yeah, interesting. Okay. So I definitely love all the classics from that golden age of king like up to when we're talking about so like you know mid 80s but i really do like children of the corn <laughs> um i really do like um uh well actually yeah you're right There's, i mean the, the 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 great one there was a revival in the 90s and some of them were quite good some of them were masterwork misery i mean william goldman's treatment of misery oh, yes. is magnificent I do Shawshank love Redemption, of course. Yeah, yeah um, but I love Pet Cemetery, um, and I love what um, he's done with Pet Cemetery. There's there's issues, of course, but I, I think... don't think it's aged well that film. I, I just I, I, I saw it recently for an interview I did, and um, it's it's very the performances seem a little soap opera, and the special effects are very hit and miss in that film. It kind of took me out of it slightly. Okay, I love Golden Falls music, but um. I think, I you know I I don't know I do love it because I think it's it was rare it's uh, for, to see um, uh, male vulnerability in a horror film and that one really captured it for me and I think Dale Mitchell yeah and also just the tragedy just the sadness of it this guy losing everything like I think mm. that, that it's such a depressing film because um, I don't because people people kind of I think assume all horror films are downers and they're not a lot of them are really not at all um, <laughs> and, but that one fucking is <laughs> it's well, kind so of book, it's book, book, book would tear your heart out that bloody yeah exactly uh, like... yeah absolutely <laughs> and there's a few horror films like that that are real downers like uh, the Godsend I'm not sure if you've ever seen that but that's an evil child film amazing Ooh, film yeah so basically Angela Pleasance Donald Pleasance's daughter. Um, is this pregnant woman who comes into the life of this family. They've got a bunch of kids and husband and wife, and she's heavily pregnant. They take her in, and she births a baby and disappears. And this baby grows up um, to this sort of, you know, child 
age and she's the same actress that plays in a house of hammer um episode called um uh children of the full moon which is a werewolf oh i know it well yeah yeah <laughs> so she's a blonde little girl the werewolf yeah. one of the Anyway, so she plays a little girl the gods send and she kills off each of their children. So this whole movie is just this <laughs> couple losing their children and grieving and you spend time with them grieving. And so the thing is just depressing. Like it's such a downer. Um, so there's a few of those and especially ones with uh, that involve children and children dying. Uh, that's something pretty heavy. Um, Audrey yeah. Rose is really mm-hmm. sad. Um, you know, there's all these films where uh, don't look now. Well, very, very depressing. Which one? The Changeling with George C. Scott. Oh, God, yeah. That's a stuff. Magnificent film. Magnificent. <laughs> yes, I know. And the way that kids killed in the bath, horrible. Oof. But um, <laughs> but magnificent films. So mm-hmm. that's so I think the, the Pet Cemetery for me, I like its sadness. I love its mournfulness. But I get what you mean. But uh, the other I one get, I, I um, think is... Uh, um, Oh, um, Firestarter. I really want to love that. And it's such an ensemble, like a wonderful ensemble. Great cast. I've got to be honest, I'm going to offend people here. Tangerine Dream scoring that drives me crazy because it's just, just stop for one moment. No, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. It's totally overused. It's if, if, if we're doing, um, Oh, yeah. But another underrated one that I always kind of recommend that kind of flies under people's radars is, is the Night Flyer. Oh yeah, you know that one with Miguel Ferrer. I, I I think that's a really strange, underrated little kind of movie there. Basically, yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, movie. and a beautiful, mm. um, you know, monster film. Exactly. But uh, back to Christine for a second. So you were yeah. lucky enough to talk to John Carpenter for the for your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. And was he was he kind of? Do you, do you get the impression he was disappointed with the reaction that Christine got? He, yeah, I think he was, but he. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I should have had my book ready with me to reference my own book. <laughs> but I, see, the thing is it's funny. So I mentioned how the first interview I had with him was with Alvis. He was, mm-hmm. he loved talking about that film. He loved talking about all the all the other stuff around it. Um, Christine, he did love talking about it as well. But I feel like um, Christine, I, I feel what I got the impression of was it was a job. Yeah. And so when someone like me or you talk to this person who is a master at their craft and have been in love with this film forever and you're like, oh, man, it's fucking this, it's awesome, blah, blah, I love it, he'll be, he'd, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, it was a job. And it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, really? So it's kind of, he's just such an earthy, grounded guy. Like he is so um, uh, modest, um, I might mm. Like he's just so, he's, you know, it's those those quiet geniuses like he just knows what he's doing and just understands you know um he understands narrative and plot he talked in detail about um hitchcock and the idea of the opening scene with christine and the and the bonnet um slamming the guy's hand and he related to hitchcock and stuff and that was really fascinating to hear just him talking about character stuff um and also just about the cars the production stuff but also themes and when I'd bring themes up to him, he'd take them on board and go, oh, cool. Because a lot of, like, when you do the job I do and, um, you know, as a critic and as a uh, someone who analyzes things um, and then you bring it to directors and obviously it's not their intention because if no one sees the same movie, but, you know, you're, you're going in there um, with a different perspective and you bring it to a director and to an artist and they hear it, 
some of them would be like, oh, okay, that's fine, that's cool. And some of them would really engage with it and go, oh, wow, you know, that's that's a really fascinating take. And that not only um, uh, is kind of, you know, good for your ego, but it's also, it's really nice to have that kind of bouncing conversation with them where, they, where you can kind of bring something to the table that their piece has, has um, inspired in you in your own analysis. It's kind of like... Mm you know, thank you for thinking outside of just being entertained, you know, and Absolutely. that's what these people do so well. You know, you can look at, that's why I think also with Christine and Cujo, especially Cujo, there's this kind of notion that it's so simplistic. There's something so, you know, point A, point B, point C, um, but not at all. Cujo is so complex. It's so deep. Mm. It says so much about the human condition. And class, and loneliness, and women, and um, domesticity, and um, you know everything in that it's packed in, and the way um, women are trapped by societal pressures, and by men, and by boys, uh, and there's a whole, there's shitloads of stuff to, you know, that I did dissect into with Cujo, but Christine's the same. So you know the idea, the concept, you know, for someone who is so who's unenlightened and doesn't know anything about storytelling. And you tell them it's a story about a possessed car that seduces the boy, and they'd be like, "Okay, what the fuck is that?" But then watch, you know, read the novel and see how brilliant it is, and watch the film and see how brilliant it is, and then you'll change your perspective. And I've had that happen. I've had people who aren't film people at all, um, you know, watch Christine and go, "Wow, that's a great script," or "That's a great story." It's like, yeah. You know, there's a lot going on there. And so these things are created by, you know, smart experts, you know. But I think, um, and also passionate experts and people with heart. These stories have heart. And I think that's the, they're the most successful horror films, the ones that are just, that are about people and about, um, you know, uh, uh, emotions. And so I think something like um, the lesser ones, yeah, it's tricky because I think, I don't, know, I don't know what you're thinking of, something like Silver Bullet and stuff. It, it's hit and miss, but there's a good yeah. there's an essence in there that's good. Yeah, and also kind of the director video, um, like sometimes they come back and those kind of little short oh, story yeah. ones, they get expanded <laughs> outwards beyond their measure into something that doesn't really hold together very well, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also the, t- the TV movie Desperation and things like that, where it's just a bit, I don't know. It seems well, speaking like of TV are. movies, one of my favorite Carpenter things is Someone's Watching Me, which I think is That's magnificent. Um, like, that is so good. I, I love TV movies, um, especially of that period. <laughs> and that one is just so good, so slick, and Adrian exactly. Barbeau in there. And But, um, but uh, yeah, I think going back to your question about Carpenter and interviewing him, he is someone who's really modest and really, um, uh, I get, yeah, I can't think of another adjective. He's it's, it's just a really down-to-earth, grounded guy who just wants to do a good job. And, and when you watch the films as an audience, like yourself and me who just revel and love these films, you're like, that's not just a job, that's a piece of art. <laughs> but when you bring it to that, to the person who's so earthy and you know lovely like John Carpenter he's like well thanks but yeah it was a job so I think Christine was definitely a job I think it it wasn't it wasn't Halloween and it wasn't the thing uh or even Escape from New York or Escape from New York or even or They Live which was very personal to him Mm. um Christine was you know this thing this this product you know he got the, the there was the rights given 
let's do this because you have to remember he wanted to do Firestarter. So that was his yeah. thing. So I would have loved to have seen what he he would have done with Firestarter because, I mean, you know, Mark Lester makes a good film. I love Class of 1984. I think that's a freaking awesome film. That's a good film. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, what's the Arnie one he did? Commando? Um, yeah. Which yeah. Is great. Commando. But um, but Firestarter, I it's like this incredible cast, you know, Dina De Laurentiis going, let's put all these people in the movie. And it's like, you know, mm-hmm. Art Carney and Louise Fletcher and, you know. George C. Scott. George C. Yeah. Scott. And, Martin Sheen. Um, yeah. Yeah, all these amazing people. And it's just some, there's something off with it. But I do <laughs> the, oh, my God, who plays her father? David Keith. David Keith. Yes, yeah, stunning mm. performance. Like he's just yeah. because he's coming That's off. Vulnerable. That's vulnerability right there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And also just it's kind of like an extension of his his character in Officer and a Gentleman, which who mm. always breaks my heart. Um, that oh, suicide God. is yeah. <laughs> but yeah, beautiful. <laughs> and I love Drew. Drew. I'm a big fan of Drew and oh, she um, good. Yeah, and um, you know, uh what she represents for Hollywood is just, you know, she's from that long line of the Barrymores and also just recently, she, I mean not recently, maybe 10 years ago, but she was doing stuff on TCM where she was talking to Robert Osborne when he was alive, so it's a while back, mm-hmm. uh, about classic cinema. I was like, she she is a ma- she needs to do more of that. <laughs> because she's such she's a cinephile, you know, she's not just an actress, she's a big fan of cinema. But um, yeah, I and I do love um, all those great um, behind the scenes photos of um, her and Stephen King on set of Firestarter yeah. and just Lighting how fatherly and like <laughs> yes, <laughs> just how fatherly he is and how sweet yeah. she, you know, I just love all that. So Firestarter holds a little bit of a, 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 a I don't know a flame for me, but um, the, but I don't know, I think. You're right. The old, the gla- the classic ones are the best. Salem's Lot, my God. Oh, you know, I just framed actually the hanging white yeah. next to me. I framed um, uh, Richard Cobritz, the producer of Christine, sent me like twenty photos from Salem's Lot and Christine, nice. and I, yeah, I just framed some of the Salem's Lot ones. But um, yeah, he was he was brilliant. Like everyone I interviewed for that film was just wonderful. They had great stories. They were really generous. Um, you know, did anybody um, refuse to talk to you? Was anybody who wasn't interested? Um, no. The only thing which is really sad now in retrospect, but um, Kelly Preston's agent um, mm. uh, oh, was like, oh, I'm not sure if she'd be up uh, available for it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, and they, and then I said, but I'd love to send her a book. Um, when it's done, and they were like, "Oh, that's very lovely of you," but then I, I feel like um, maybe she was at the start of being unwell. Um, yeah. yeah, which, which, yeah, which is really sad because she's so she's just gorgeous in that film. It's a, it's a and it's a, like it's a tiny role, but there's so much in there as well. Like it's so sweet, it's kind and of it's a kind of role, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, I, in my analysis, I liken it to Cars again. She's like the old model. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's kind of like the, the, she's gorgeous and stunning, and has all the right curves and everything. But she's the older model because now mm-hmm. this other chick's in the in the picture. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Alexandra was great. Um, mm-hmm. John Stockwell was someone I could not get a hold of. So mm-hmm. it's not like he refused, but he just couldn't give. I couldn't get a hold Thank of him. You. And Mar- Marion Rothman didn't have much to say. Um, uh, <laughs> she was the editor. But um, she, yeah, she, um, 
was like, ah, oh, you know, what I remember is this. And she gave me very, very little, but that's okay. Uh, but, you know, everyone everyone was on board. It was great. And, you know, um, the guy who designed the cars and um, the cinematographer, they were all on board. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, it was a really fun, fun book to work on and really smooth, whereas The Howling... <laughs> Which I, which was, you know, mostly fun and to work on. There were there were some hiccups here and there, but that was that's fine. It just took so freaking long to get that one out. <laughs> but, but I'm really proud of how it came out, and that's I love that film, and I'm proud of the book. And oh, everyone invo- everyone who I spoke to from that was just top notch, brilliant, beautiful, wonderful oh, people. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's 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 a uh, it's interesting. I really I, I really love doing this. Like I love doing what I do, and um, yeah, I just think monographs are really important. Just a whole case study on one film and you know, and its source material is important. I don't know. Do you like, what What are your favourites as far as like film criticism books or? Um, well, The Howling is, is very important to me. Yes. I, I'm actually working on my MA thesis at the moment, dealing with um, werewolf films of 1981. Cool. So I'm reading everything about an American wolf in London, about uh, cat people, about Wolfen. And Wolfen's a huge favourite of mine. And it's another one of those books there's not much written about. And I think mm-hmm. it's one of those books that needs to be more written about. But no, definitely The Howling as well, yeah. Are you going to mention Full Moon High? Yes. Uh, yeah. I was actually, I'm emailing, I'm in an email discussion at the moment with um, Steve Mitchell, who made the recent documentary about Larry Cohen. Great. And King Cohen and Full Moon High isn't mentioned at all in that documentary. And I kind of, I was wondering if it was like uh, something that Larry particularly didn't like, but it was just a question of, he didn't really have time to talk about it, but I've got some interesting info about Full Moon High that I'm going to, I'm going to be sharing in my work, hopefully. Cause I think, it's a, I think it's a great film. It's, it's very kind of, it feels like it's being made up as it goes along, but it's also got a lot of to it as well. That's funny. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I um, just released a two-volume book on very special episodes of sitcoms. And one of my interviewees was Jim J. Bullock, who was Monroe in yes. Too Close for Comfort. And he's in Full Moon High. So I should hook you up. <laughs> yeah. So um, so this interview will go out at the end of November. And in December, we're all looking forward to a new adaptation of The Stand coming on television. Mm. And it's part of... Um, Kind of a, another, we talked earlier about the golden age of Stephen King adaptations, and I think we're kind of going through another period like that where you are getting things like It and Gerald's Game and Mr. Mercedes, where kind of the outsider, where proper artists are making adaptations of Stephen King work. Yeah. Do you think Christine is going to be kind of remade as part of that kind of cycle? Do you think it's time for a remake? Do you think they should try? I, I don't need one. <laughs> Personally, I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's a perfect film. I don't want to see a CGI car. I don't oh want to God. see. I don't want to see unlikable young actors in there. I, I just, yeah, I think it's perfect. Keith Gordon was perfect. Alexander Paul was perfect. John Stockwell, every, like every aspect of that film, I feel was perfect. I think it's if, if Alan Howard's music. My God, yeah. you know, like everything about it, the the use of the rock and roll stuff. It's just brilliant. If they were to do a remake and, like, I don't, I just feel like would people, like, you know, how they redid it and they updated it so it would be the kids, what, in the like, mid-80s or whatever, no, 1989 or, yeah. 
now. The end of the eighties. That's right, because Elm Street, po- Elm Street Five posters are everywhere. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have, to, and then they, so they can update it so that you know it can be at this time and period and have mobile fucking phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So imagine. if they were to do Christine again and they don't do it. <laughs> you know, as derivative of the 50s, that would just suck. So, no, I'm not into it. I do, I I mean, I really wanted to get into that Castle Rock series, but I just yes, yes. couldn't. I was like, oh, my God. Because there were aspects of it that I really were like, oh, cool, it's going to be, you know, uh, and there's someone looking at a newspaper article about Cujo and then someone's going to go to yeah. Shawshank and then there's like someone's going to drive through the thing and there's a radio report about, you know, yeah. dis- disappearing children in Salem's, Jerusalem's lot or some shit. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. But then I'd sit through it and go, I can't watch this. Like it's not making any my, – my brain wasn't connecting to it. <laughs> and I will say the that- second season – Picks up a lot. The first season I thought was a little dull and a little slow, but the second season is is a little better. You get the Marston House. It's more about Jerusalem's lot. It's not. I don't think it was what Stephen King fans really were expecting or wanted, but mm. it, it kind of it's got some moments. It picks up a bit. Yeah, right. You can, you can live without it. You can live without it. Right. <laughs> it, it wasn't The Outsider or Mr. Mercedes, which I thought were both excellent adaptations of the work. Mm, I haven't seen those yet. I I liked um, the the Shining sequel. Oh, Doctor Sleep! Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, that really kind of combined the novel and the Kubrick's film really well. I thought. I agree. Yeah, really well. Um, just calm down with the vapes like that. Just goes. <laughs> there's too many of it. Too much of it. Yeah. But uh, but I did like it a lot. Yeah, and that last sequence, like in the oh. Overlook, was great. Beautiful, but, um, yeah, I think um, the Golden Age, like, yeah, I mean, I love The Shining, Salem's Lot, Carrie, Christine Cujo, The Dead Zone. Those are Dead all Zone, the yeah. best. And also, yeah, coming when you go back, go straight into 1990, I think Misery is just so splendid, mm-hmm. like so Good wonderful, job. wonderfully constructed and, you know, um, the, those two just masters. But, um yeah, I think Christine doesn't really need a remake at all. I don't think any of them do. I mean, the Carrie remake, fuck. And then also, um, Jesus, yeah, just awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and it's it's sad because the people responsible are great. Um, but I just don't understand how they could miss the point there and really waste I don't know, uh, people's talents like Julianne Moore, who's also a big King fan, and, but just just awful and just the look of it, the aesthetic. Oh, I think that's what kills it for me. I think the aesthetic, like that it two-parter. Mm-hmm. So the, the second one, oh, my God, I just I squirmed, not it for the right reasons, just because it's like, yeah. sh- just stop. It's just doing my head. <laughs> but there were two scenes in that film that I thought, wow, that that they are, that's really good stuff. This one of them was um, the Richie. You know how they they made the Richie character gay, and there's a scene mm. where he's a little boy and he's playing pin uh, playing street oh, yeah, fighter, yeah. and the mm. way um, you know he connects with the other guy and it's like probably a first crush, and then he's bullied and kicked out. That was just beautiful. I thought that was really poignant and well done. Mm. And then it, then it turns into a CGI fucking lumberjack. Yeah. The next. The other scene, which I thought was terrific, was the little girl. I uh, can't remember the character's name, but she's got the birthmark, and she. Uh, yeah, she, under the bleachers. Under the bleachers, and there's and mm. the whole that cruel 
the cruelty of that scene where he's like, you know, I can blow it away or whatever. Like that is the, the promise of getting rid of Stunning. So beautiful writing and beautiful scene. And then it turns into this stupid, <laughs> you know, trap jaw. Oh, my God. Just cut before he eats her and then have the mother discovering a seven arm. Much better. Yeah. Anyway. Well, in my opinion, it, it, none of it could have could have been as bad as the Pet Cemetery uh, uh, reboot that we had to suffer. Oh, my God. That was a low. That was a big low. Whoa. I walked out of it a couple of times to go and drink at the bar. <laughs> But that was just awful. And what? And once again, what a waste of John Lithgow, who I love. And Jason Clarke, both fine actors, but both, yeah, absolutely wasted. Yeah, what a ridiculous. shocking, just awful. Uh, um, and once again, so sorry, my main point, I keep rambling, <laughs> is the aesthetic. So for people always yeah. like, Lee, do you watch new films? I go, not really. And, and, and mostly it's because of the aesthetic. I just don't think they look good. I, don't, I definitely don't like seeing any kind of ac- new action films or, you know, CGI riddled yeah. films. I just find them ugly. They look shit. So mm-hmm. I just, I, you know, whatever. And um, I always counter it anyway when people go, oh, you know, water cooler movies, I call them. Like, oh, did you see, have you seen this yet? Oh, fuck off. What do you mean? <laughs> like there's a, you know, there's an expiry date. But it's like, so, so you know, people will go, oh, have you seen this yet? And I go, no. And I go, well, have you seen, you know, all of these Errol Flynn films yet or John Crawford? <laughs> so I always. But I just Douglas Fairbanks. Nobody's watching Douglas Fairbanks anymore. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I think I think the thing is with with um, uh, you know kind of busy special effects style horror, it definitely needs the um, you know the practical effects, and it needs it needs to be what it was. So when, when you see contemporary horror films and they're just, you know, all the gags are done through CG, everything's shot on digital, um, you know, uh, close-ups of things like Google screens and mobile phones, I just, I, I, my brain and my heart does not connect. So yeah. I think when Stephen King works are now being made and they're kind of in that perspective, in that kind of zone, it's, it loses me. However, there are exceptions like Doctor Sleep, which I thought you know was was terrific. It had it had a had a nice steady aesthetic. I mean, like I said, it could have trimmed a few of those <laughs> vaping sequences. But other than that, but um, yeah, I think it's to do with aesthetic for me. I can't connect if it's not looking no, good. That's why. That's why, like you know, all those early films that we mentioned. You know, a shot by just geniuses. So you've got the cinemat- the directors, but you've got these incredible editors and, and cinematographers mm-hmm. on board. Like, you know, Jan de Bont's work in Cujo is beautiful and uh, Mario Tossi's in, in Carrie, my God, you know, like that is, you know, he, he did Carrie and Sybil in the same year. So he did Sybil, <laughs> the, the Sally Field film, and that, that's just as terrifying as Carrie, if not more so. Um, and and the aesthetic is just stunning, and Sybil's a TV movie. Um, mm. So I think there's all these these artists from that period that just knew it and just got it, and just um, yeah, I don't know. There's um, so there's something missing there for here. So if if there is a Christine remake, maybe give it to someone who is I don't know schooled in being able to direct a good film. It's like. <laughs> see, I will always go and I'll always go and see one of the you know the, the auteurs of the seventies doing a film now. Like if Scorsese 
has a film out, I'll go and see it, you know. Oh, I, I, I probably will see Spielberg's redoing of West Side Story, but, you know, nothing can compare. I, I will go mm. in there going, this is not going to be my West Side Story, which is Robert <laughs> Wise and Jerome Robbins, but I'll see it. But I'll, and I'll probably get annoyed, you know. But uh, but I, I just, <laughs> but I just feel like the, the you know people that we've grown up loving, I'll see their films. But um, yeah, I don't know. I yeah, Carpenter just does magic with work with you know um, pre-existing text. I think, and if it's original, it's even better. You know, like the fog. And of course, and... he's not making films anymore. No, no chance he can besmirch his legacy. I suppose. I know. I know. Yeah. So um, we ask all our guests on the constant read of this before we go. Firstly, uh, what are you reading at the moment? And what is a book you would recommend to everybody, apart from your own book, of course, which <laughs> I think everybody should read anyway? Thank you. Um, the book I'm reading at the moment is Cinematic Canines. Um, so it's do- dogs and their work in the fiction film. So it's this great um, collection of essays about dogs in movies um, and I'm also reading a Robert Redford biography um, because I'm working on a book at the moment on ordinary people. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm deep into sort of reading at the moment. But I've, geez, I've recently bought loads of bloody books. But, um, but yeah, they're the ones I'm reading at the moment. Um, and uh, what was the thing? Oh, what, should, what I'd recommend yeah, to buy? Yeah, recommend a book for everybody. Oh, God. Um... Hmm, that's a good question. Or or a film. Oh God. Uh that's lots of them. Um all right, because we talked about Christine, I would suggest another um film about a killer machine, and it's a TV movie called Killdozer. And the oh, reason yeah. I the reason I say it is because I did the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's a wonderful film. Um with um, Clint Walker, and I did the commentary with Jarrett Garn, another Melbourne guy who is a film critic as well, and we'd had a great time doing the commentary on that, but it's a great film. Um, you know, one by one, these men on a work site are killed off by this um, uh, this bulldozer which is infected by a meteorite. That's terrific. Also, um, uh, my friend Alexandra Hallenicholas, uh, another amazing writer and critic here in Melbourne, she... Um, recommended a film which I had never seen called Mr. Wrong, which is a New Zealand horror movie, which is kind of like a female version of Christine in that female being the Keith Gordon character. So it's about a woman, a young woman who is really kind of like this sort of a bit of a loser and her mum and dad think she'll never, uh, you know, uh, be anything and she's kind of oppressed by her mother and father. And the one thing that gives her independence is a car. And the car is the quote unquote Mr. Wrong because he starts it starts killing people that get in her way. So that's a film that you should check out. And the other one, of course, is The Car with James Brolin. Um and there's that great and the Hey? The Wraith. Oh yes, that's great as well. Also, <laughs> there's a terrific um Twilight Zone episode called You Drive, which is about mm. a, a car that goes wild. Um, and also um, a film that I reference in Christine in the not in the book, the making of book, is a pre-code film called Female, which is about a woman who um, runs a runs a sort of a car manufacturer, and it's really interesting because the whole movie is just littered with um, references to women and cars 
um, uh, in a comparative way. Like, so it's, it's really fascinating. But, yeah, there's so much good things to read and watch. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're all locked down and quarantined. There's plenty of time to do it. Yeah, I know. Um, you guys are having it bad, aren't you? It's not great, but uh, we've just, we're hopefully the new year we'll get vaccinated and we'll all be okay again. Hopefully. Mm. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it only remains for me to thank my guest, Lee Gambin, very much for what's been a, an enjoyable and interesting and elucidating conversation. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be speaking to Bill Phillips, the screenwriter of Christine Soon. And also stay tuned for our other guests coming up, including Mike Munster from the Evolution of Horror podcast and the return of some old favorites. Don't forget to write, review, subscribe, and rate this podcast wherever you find it. And also like to shout out to Deanna Chapman, the host of Chat Cemetery, one of my uh, other favorite Stephen King podcasts apart from this one. And we look forward to seeing you all very soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>